Uh, well, again, good morning. Uh, we are continuing our uh, walk through various biblical themes this semester in theological equipping class. Today, we are looking at the theme of preaching, preaching, uh, which I think maybe doesn't jump out as uh, a normal kind of expected theme. You know, uh, Jared did Children of God last week. We've talked about the serpent crusher theme throughout the scriptures. There's, there's various themes that seem obvious. Preaching, uh, we're like, yeah, we know we do that now in the, the church age, but uh, is that really something that runs throughout the whole Bible? Um, yes, it is, actually, and that's what we're going to look at. Uh, and I want to begin with just kind of asking the question, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we, as a church, do the things that we do? Why, in like an hour and a half, are we going to gather right here, sing a few songs, pray some prayers, and listen to Jared yell at us for 45 minutes? Uh, this is not something most people do uh, on a Sunday morning. Well, maybe in the Bible Belt it is something most people do, but... Uh, it's not something that's common for everybody, right? Just gathering together and listening to someone speak for uh, an extended period of time. Uh, and and my aim, part of my aim for this tech is to, to give uh, an answer to that question. Uh, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we hold a high value on uh, preaching here at the Parkway Church? Uh, why has Christ Church for generations uh, had preaching at the center of our gathering. Uh, and, uh, and one of the ways we're going to think about that is just kind of con through considering this theme, seeing where we stand in the trajectory of this theme. So this theme is unique uh, in the sense that we currently are a part of what God is doing across the theme of preaching in the scriptures. We are living now in the final stage of this theme. Uh, the preaching ministry that God has ordained for the church age is the end of the theme of preaching across the Bible. Uh, it's not the most important part of the theme. Uh, as with every theme, Jesus is the most important part. Uh, but it is a crucial uh, part that the Bible has, has, uh, has revealed uh, as it unfolds across the scriptures. This theme of preaching, where we stand today, is absolutely essential uh, and, and part of what I also hope to show then is that preaching is not optional. It's not the case that, you know, here at Parkway, we, uh, we're like, wow, you know, Westerners really like TED Talks, so we're going to do, we're going to preach and when we get together on Sunday mornings, or, you know, that we did a bunch of research that said, when people, you know, you'll really reel a bunch of people in when you have, you know, Jared yell with them for 45 minutes. It's so much fun. Um, I hope after we've gone through the scriptures here and considered the unfolding of this theme, you will see that preaching is not optional primarily because it is something that is rooted in the very character of God. That preaching is something, yes, God commands. We're going to look at 2 Timothy, where it says, or 1 Timothy 4, rather, where it says, preach the word, but also that it is something rooted in the very character of the God that we come to worship. Uh, one more final thing before we dive in. Uh, this is not fully a lecture on the theology of preaching. There will be things I'll leave unsaid about preaching. Uh, if we were just doing, you know, working through theolog theological topics and this was a, a lecture on just what we need to think about preaching from the Bible in general, there are other things I would be also adding on or, or things I would be removing. Um, what we're doing is tracing the development of the theme, right, from the very beginning to where we are today, uh, and we'll see what preaching is and why we must do it. Okay. The beginning of the basis for preaching, the beginning of the theme of preaching starts in the very third, third verse of the Bible, and God said, God said. Preaching starts with God's self-revelation. We worship a talking God. We worship a talking God. The, the first verb that's attributed to God in the Bible is that he created, but the way in which he created is the second verb in the Bible, which is that he said, he speaks things into existence uh, this is a mind-blowing reality that I don't think we really fully grasp. 
We worship a talking God, and that's actually one of the ways that the Bible differentiates him from the false gods of the world who can't talk. So look at at Jeremiah chapter 10. Uh, He's talking about the other gods, the other nations, the idols they worship. He says, their idols, (laughs) I love this, they're like scarecrows in a cucumber field. I don't know why a cucumber field, but it sounds more insulting, I think, that way. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. But when he, God, utters his voice, there's tumult of waters in the heavens. He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God speaks, and boom, universe. His speech is powerful. It is effective. It makes things happen, and it is revelatory. He communicates who he is through his speech. So God, throughout the Bible, we see this again and again, provides the authoritative interpretation for his works. So he does something, like he, he frees you know, the Israelites from uh, captive, captivity in Egypt, and then he tells them exactly why he did that. He says, I'm a jealous God, and I'm the only true God you're going to worship. You're going to follow me. You're going to obey my commandments. That's why I did this. They're not left to wonder, oh, I wonder why God saved us. He must think we're really awesome. We're the best people in the world. No, God says, I did that because I chose to love you and I'm going to make you my people. He provides the authoritative interpretation of his own works. He tells us who he is. As as Calvin says, God alone is a fit witness of himself. God alone is a fit witness of himself. He is unique in this regard. Uh, if you think about this, my, my wife can bear witness about me. She can tell you, you know, things I like, things I don't like. She can tell you all my, you know, little idiosyncrasies, and there are many of them which, with which she is mercifully patient. Uh, she knows those uh, little details about me often better than I do because she has to deal with them, right? And she can explain them to you. But imagine uh, asking a little ant walk crawling on the sidewalk what Lee is like. It's ridiculous, right? The, 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 the ant is unable to in any way encapsulate what, what Lee is like, what kind of person he is, his, his character. It's, it's ridiculous unless in some kind of great miraculous condescension, I learn ant language and I tell the ant what I'm like. Here's who I am. Here's, here's my character. Now you can tell all your ant friends, you know, about me or whatever. That is functionally what it is like when God speaks to us so that we can bear witness to who he is. He has to tell us. He has to reveal himself to us. He has to condescend because of his infinite majesty, wisdom, power, and beauty. Only he can testify to who he is. Who has known the mind of the Lord? The answer, of course, is no one except the Lord. Only the Lord can tell us who he is. Uh, and, and I start there uh, because that is the basis for preaching, uh, and it has immense theological implications. The primary one is that we can only speak about God because God has spoken about God. We can only say anything in preaching because God has revealed himself. Preaching starts with God's self-revelation. Uh, maybe you've uh, heard uh, the, uh, the, the, I don't know what you call it, like a, not a story, like a parable, I guess, of the six blind men and the elephant. Anyone here heard of the six blind men and the elephant? Wow, like one of you. Okay. Or maybe you're just shy and you don't want to raise your hand. Okay, we're seeing more. That's a, thank you. That's helpful. Um, so for those of you who don't know, it's, I think it, it goes back to Hinduism. It's kind of uh, an idea of you know, all religions are telling the same story, basically, is, is the punchline of it. There are six blind men. They find an elephant, and they're all feeling different parts of it. One finds the tail and says an elephant's like a rope. One finds the, the what do you call it, the foot, the leg, uh, and says an elephant is like a tree. One finds the ear, says an elephant's like a fan or something. One finds the trunk and says an elephant's like a snake. Like They're all touching different parts of the elephant, and they're all saying, this is what the elephant's like. And the, the, the kind of the point of the story is supposed to be, this is what all religions are doing. They're saying, uh, God is like this. Every religion's grabbing a little different part of him. Uh, and together, they're, they're saying, 
they're saying what God is like. So Hinduism gets this reality, Buddhism gets this reality, Islam gets this reality, and Christianity gets this, this reality, and, and that's, that's what we're doing. Uh, well, uh, if, if you've heard of Kevin DeYoung, he's a Reformed pastor, I think he's in North Carolina right now. Um, he's ta- I've, I've heard him talk about that analogy, and he, he had some, I think, very helpful insights with the, the, the major problems in that analogy. Uh, the first that most people recognize is that it's being told from a, a viewpoint of omniscience, that the person who's telling the story knows it is an elephant. Uh, so, so whoever says all religions are like this are saying, I am the one who has ultimate authority. I know everything, uh, which is very arrogant. Um, but the bigger problem that DeYoung points out the, the, is that the, the entire illustration, the whole analogy falls apart if the elephant speaks. If the elephant says, hey, everyone, I'm an elephant, right? Uh, then it is very clear that, no, 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 the different religions saying, oh, it's like this, it's like this, like this. No, 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 the elephant has told everyone what he is like. Therefore, it is not wise or, you know, uh, intelligent of us to say, uh, we're just grasping different parts of it. No, 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 the elephant has spoken and said, I'm not a rope, I'm not a fan, I'm not a tree, I'm an elephant, Functionally, that is, uh, fundamentally rather, that is the Christian claim. That's what we're saying. God has spoken and said, this is what I am like. This is who I am. He has revealed himself. This is the reason that you can say to you know, your new age cousin or your Muslim neighbor that their view of God is wrong. It's not arrogance or pride on your part. It is you saying, God has spoken and told us what he is like. And that is the fundamental basis for preaching. So as we we trace this theme across the scriptures, we will see how God has always raised up preachers to proclaim the truth of who he is, to to herald his own self-revelation. And that begins with Adam. Begins with Adam. So God makes Adam. Uh, We get the kind of a a big picture description in Genesis 1, and we get a a narrow kind of zoomed in description in Genesis 2. Uh, And the first thing God says to Adam is a command. Genesis 2 verse 16, he says, and the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, Now, I'll admit what I'm about to do is a little bit of speculation. Uh, It's not a slam dunk. You don't have to walk away agreeing with uh, this this next part. But it seems to me the most likely thing that happened after that is that Adam communicated that command to Eve. Eve. Eve was not created when that command was given. Uh, after this command is given, uh, that's when all the animals come by and Adam names them. And then he's like, there's no, one to, there's no helper fit for me. And so God puts him to sleep and makes Eve. Uh, and then the next time we hear that command is out of the mouth of Eve in Genesis chapter 3. So Eve wasn't created yet when God gave the command. And then the next time we hear it is coming out of her mouth Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. It seems to me that Adam preached God's word to his wife. He communicated what God had said. He he said to her, after God made her, he told her, hey, God said, not that tree. Not that tree over there. And if you look uh, at the two passages, I put them side by side there for you in your notes, there are two differences. Uh, The first is that the description of the tree is different. Uh, The first one, uh, God calls it the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The second one, Eve says it's the one in the midst of the garden. Uh, And then the second difference is uh, that uh, Eve adds something in there. She says, neither shall you touch it, which wasn't what God explicitly said. Uh, And there's there's a lot of ideas about why there's those differences. One uh, argument uh, that's often put out there to explain the difference uh, is that uh, Adam and Eve were being legalistic. 
Uh, like uh, they, you know, the, God said, don't eat of the tree, but they're like, we, we can't, we got to put a new rule in. We can't even touch it. Uh, I think that there's a big theological problem with that. The, the main problem being the fact that sin did not exist yet. Uh, so saying that legalism existed, which is a sin, uh, it's putting yourself in the place of God, inventing your own rules, uh, that that existed somehow, is, there's a, a major theological issue there. Uh, so, so why the differences? Why is it the case what God said to, to Adam, the command, and what Eve explained from the command to the serpent, uh, why are there these differences? Well, it seems to me that Adam communicated to Eve what God said, but he did it without using the exact same words. That he communicated the essence, the, 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 the heart of God's command, but not the exact same words. So Eve asked maybe, what tree are we talking about? And he's like, that one in the midst of the garden. Over there, you see that one. That's he. Did, he could have said the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but he just kind of pointed and said that one in the middle. Right, same point, different words. Uh, and then he also probably said, you know what? Don't even touch it. That's the family policy. No one touches the death tree. Okay, uh, just don't even bother touching. Let's just stay away because you know we we don't want to even you know come close to that. Uh, and that seems fine. It's not legalism. It's just the application of what God said. So he was preaching. He was re-speaking, restating God's word, but not necessarily with the same words. Again, I'm making an argument from silence. This isn't a slam dunk. This isn't like very clear cut. Uh, but it seems to me that it fits. Uh, and, and it certainly fits with what we're going to see again and again and again in the scriptures, that, that God gives his word to his people and he raises up a preacher to re-communicate his word to his people, to say what God has said, uh, but not necessarily with the exact same words. Uh, and that, uh, the next main place we see that is with uh, probably the main preacher of the Old Testament, Moses. Uh, Moses is a really big deal. Uh, that's an understatement. He's a, a massive deal. I had a friend in, in high school who was Jewish. Uh, he was... He was ethnically Jewish and kind of vaguely religiously Jewish. His name was Asher, a very Jewish name. His middle name was Aaron, very Jewish name, right? And I remember we were uh, all, me and my buddies were all kind of eating dinner together, and someone asked Asher to pray for our meal. And Asher, again, not a, he wasn't a religious person, but he was kind of Jewish. Uh, and I will never forget, he, you know, bows his head, folds his hand, he says, thank you, Moses, for this food. And I was like, uh, you know, I, I was like, I was a new Christian at the time. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to do that. I'm, I'm pretty sure monotheism was just violated. Um, Asher uh, doesn't know all about what he's supposed to believe as a Jew, but uh, he does know very clearly Moses is a big deal, right? Moses is a, he is the top of the pyramid. Uh, you shouldn't pray to him, but Moses, or sorry, Asher had this vague idea that Moses was important, so he did pray to him. Um, and Moses was a preacher. Moses was a preacher. Now, uh, before you Bible nerds start getting angry at me and say, no, 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 Aaron was the preacher, remember, because Moses stuttered. Um, yes, this is true. Congratulations. Uh, thank you for your help. Uh, Aaron was Moses' mouthpiece, but that was not always the case. Moses was a preacher, too. In the end, he preached a lot more than Aaron, uh, and the primary evidence for that is the book of Deuteronomy. The entire book of Deuteronomy is three sermons by Moses for the people of God, and maybe you're thinking, well, how do we know Aaron didn't preach it on behalf of Moses? Aaron was dead. Uh, so, gotcha. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 3. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all the Lord had given him in commandment to them. Moses was a preacher. He was a preacher. He is restating to God's people what God had already said. No one cared about Moses' ideas. No one cares uh, what Moses thinks about things. They want to hear, and he is charged to give the people God's word uh, and uh, maybe, actually, you've noticed, if you've, if you've been reading through the Bible uh, chronologically, I don't know, you might be probably judges right now or something, I'm not sure, um, uh, at this point in the year, but uh, maybe you noticed the book of Deuteronomy is incredibly redundant. 
It is shockingly redundant. I mean, it's basically a repetition of everything that happened in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It's, it's just repeating all those same things. And actually, the name of the book gives that away. So I've, I've translated it for you. Uh, Deuteronomy comes from two Greek words, deuteros and namos. Uh, deuteros means second, and namos means law. So it's second law. It's basically saying, we're just repeating everything that we've already talked about, right? So Moses' sermons, the book of Deuteronomy is three sermons, is a restatement of what God has already said. Uh, but one of the things that's also important is realizing who Moses is preaching to. He's preaching to the people of God. Uh, and that is the case, we will see again and again throughout the scriptures, is that preaching is primarily for, directed to, the people of God. We see that in Deuteronomy. Moses is not making a secret about who he's speaking to. He says, hear, O Israel, like 20 times. I put just a couple of the references in there for you. Uh, hear, O Israel. This is God speaking to his people so that they may know how to live and walk with him. So when God speaks in the Bible and his message is preached, the target audience is most often his people, uh, it is true, yes, preaching is for the world. Preaching is, is supposed to go out to unbelievers too. Moses, for example, preached God's word to uh, Pharaoh, who was not a believer by any stretch. Uh, we are called to speak the truth of the gospel to the world, to our neighbors. Uh, evangelism is a thing. But the biblical weight is very heavy in one direction, that preaching is primarily for the people of God. And that will continue in our next step in the journey, the Old Testament prophets. Uh, first, probably be helpful. Uh, I know I'm, I'm going quickly through the Old Testament here because I want to say a lot about the New Testament. Um, uh, but so we're just kind of skipping a rock across the, the major players, Adam, Moses, uh, the Old Testament prophets, and then we'll look at Ezra next. Uh, first, though, we need to probably define prophet uh, I, don't, I, I don't think this is probably the case, but uh, often uh, in just kind of vague, not even Christian circles, but kind of vaguely religious circles, uh, the word prophet means something like fortune teller. That is not at all what the Old Testament prophets were doing. Uh, they were not fundamentally about, uh, you know, foreseeing the future. They did talk about what's coming in the future, um, but their ministry was actually primarily one of preaching, uh, not, you know, fortune-telling or, or anything like that. Uh, the easiest way, actually, to define a prophet uh, is to look at the example of Moses and Aaron. So, in Exodus uh, chapter 4, this is long before the age of the prophets, uh, but this is, yeah, right, at, right after Moses has met with God, uh, and he's saying, you know, I can't speak. And then it says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You will speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth, I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak to the people, or he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. That's interesting. Moses shall be as God to Aaron, who will be speaking. Uh, and we get very clearly, in three chapters later in Exodus 7, God says, this is what a prophet is. So the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 7, verse 1, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So Aaron is fundamentally like a, a, a prophet for Moses. So uh, Mo Moses says, here's what we need to say, and Aaron says it. That is what a prophet does. They are a mouthpiece for God. When God has something to say throughout the Old Testament, when he has something to say to his people, he uses a prophet. He puts his words in their mouth, as Moses did with Aaron. We find this again and again. I put a couple references there for you about this, that just kind of show us uh, what the prophets are doing. Uh, they almost always start their preaching with the word of the Lord came to, you know, blank. Okay, so the prophets are just kind of doing whatever they're doing, and then the word of the Lord comes, and then they can speak. Or they'll start, like Obadiah and Amos, with, thus says the Lord. Or Isaiah 2, Isaiah 1, verse 2. Uh, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord 
has spoken. Ezekiel 37, I prophesied as I was commanded. Prophets speak because God has chosen to speak through them. Uh, and they speak about a lot of things. Uh, often they will call Israel back to repentance. So they're, they're saying, here's what the law says. You need to obey it. You need to walk in repentance. Uh, they, give, they do give promises about what God will do in the future. Uh, some of them did very weird things. Like Isaiah, uh, this is the weirdest chapter in the book of Isaiah. It's like six verses, and he walked around naked for three years to make a point. It's an interesting development of the theme of preaching. I'm glad the development stopped there. Uh, the point, though, is this. All of the prophets had a preaching ministry. They had a preaching ministry. The prophet who preached the least was Jonah, which is probably because he was on the run uh, from God. But in the end, he did speak. He declared the word of the Lord to uh, the, the Assyrians in, in Nineveh. So all of them spoke on behalf of God so that what a prophet said, God said. Uh, and the Bible's clear. Uh, interestingly, that their preaching ministry was in direct continuity with Moses' preaching ministry. So Moses, as I said, is kind of the premier preacher of the Old Testament. Well, prophets are in the line of Moses in that sense. Look at Deuteronomy 18. This is a huge verse. Obviously, uh, the fulfillment of this is ultimately going to be Jesus, uh, but it also applies to the Old Testament prophets. God says, I will raise up for them, he's speaking to Moses, a prophet like you, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. Whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of, of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet, or that same prophet, shall die. Again, Jesus is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of this, but the fact that he's talking about other prophets and, and false prophets shows us that this is, what, this is pointing us towards the, the prophets God will raise up throughout the Old Testament to herald his word, to speak his revelation to his people. Uh, and a, a false prophet is one who doesn't say what God has said. And so the penalty is death. So they maybe say, God said this, and God didn't say that. Or God says this and they don't say anything. It's a false prophet. Uh, and also important to see in this that it is God who raises up prophets. That's, that's verse 18. I will raise up for them. So God is the one who raises up prophets. Prophets don't speak unless God gives them the message. I, just look at Amos uh, in chapter 7. I love this. Amos is talking about his calling to, to the preaching ministry. He says, uh, and then Amos answered, said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, as if this was hereditary. But I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So uh, God raises up prophets. No one, you know, Amos wasn't walking around like, I have some ideas. I'm so frustrated with Israel. They need to hear my thoughts. No, uh, he was doing whatever he was doing, and God said, I'm going to raise you up, and you're going to speak my word to my people. Uh, so a true prophet is one who faithfully communicates God's word, and to reject that prophet is to reject God himself. We see that again and again. I gave a couple examples of that in your notes. All right, one more Old Testament example. How are we doing on time? We're okay. Um, one more Old Testament example before we bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Actually, this really is, I think, the bridge in a sense. Uh, Ezra is probably the closest we get to New Testament preaching in the Old Testament. It's a huge development of the theme. Uh, part of the reason uh, for that is that Ezra's ministry was a uh, preaching ministry of the written word of God. So the prophets uh, just, you know, God said, speak this. They hear the verbal word of God and they spoke it. Their words were written down. We have them. Um, but fun, first and foremost, it was a ministry of, of verbal preaching, uh, or, sorry, hearing God's word verbally and speaking it, but Ezra is preaching the written word of God. And it's important as we think about our own Bibles to see that those are held on the exact same level. Uh, God literally speaking from the heavens and saying something to Moses or something to Isaiah is put on the exact same level of Ezra just opening his Bible and saying to the people, this is what it says. Uh, but we get Ezra's ministry uh, in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're just going to walk through this uh, 
this real quick. So look at, look at Ezra's ministry, uh, Nehemiah 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So they're, they're gathering together. It's the assembled people of God. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. They're saying, bring the book. We don't care what Ezra thinks. We don't care if Ezra has a PhD in whatever. We want to hear from the book, from God. Verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. That's our audience, men and women, anyone who can understand. Verse 3, and he read from it. I love how simple that is. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform he had made for this purpose. He's on a, think of it kind of like a pulpit. He's on this wooden platform, right? Uh, and that, that I put in your notes there, there's like 20 unpronounceable Hebrew names that I'm not going to labor through for you. So uh, you can see those in your own Bible if you'd like. Uh, and then it says, The Levites helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly and they gave the sense so that people could understand the reading. Now, this is, I think, one of the clearest descriptions, certainly in the Old Testament, we get of expositional preaching, of an open Bible, and then an explanation of what it says. Read, here's what God's Word says, here's what it means. Expositional preaching, we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but that's what they're doing here. They're giving the sense... So the people can understand what the Bible says and live by it. Ezra preached the written word of God. Uh, but notice, I think it's interesting, he's preaching the law of Moses. So this is like Old, Old, Old Testament. For Ezra, this was like way back in the day. Uh, but it remained just as relevant and true for Ezra and the people listening as it was in the days when Moses first wrote it down. Uh, and today we preach a book that its most recent contribution was like 2,000 years ago. But preaching is about explaining old truths in new contexts, which brings us all the way to the New Testament. This is where we get the climax of the theme and where we will find ourselves today. And there's two uh, things I want to look at in the New Testament. First, the ministry of Jesus, and second, the preaching ministry of the church. Uh, just to quickly summarize the kind of five things I think we've seen throughout the Old Testament... First, preaching can only happen because God has spoken. Second, it involves re-saying what God has said. Third, it is primarily directed at the people of God. Fourth, God raises up preachers to serve his people. He puts his word in their mouths. And then fifth, uh, with Ezra, uh, preaching explains old truths and applies them in new context. I'm kind of, kind of going to use each of those to look at the ministry of Jesus and see how he maxes out absolutely every one of those, how it is completely climaxed in him, in his ministry. Because in the New Testament, all of those will convalesce, all this, these things we've seen about the, the theme of preaching in the Old Testament, they convalesce not in a sermon, but in a person. In Jesus himself, he appears and he is God's ultimate revelation. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God is like? Look at his son. He is the ultimate revelation. John one, <clears throat> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why is Jesus called the Word of God? I think there's actually several reasons, but one of them is He is the revelation. He is the message about who God is and what God has done. So yes, he preached, we'll talk about that, but ultimately he himself is the message. He is a sermon in the flesh, which means he has a unique and an ultimate authority. He is the revelation. We see that in Matthew chapter 7. 
Uh, this is after the Sermon on the Mount. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why are they amazed? Because he was so charismatic. No. Because he had such brilliant ideas. No. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The scribes opened up the Bible and, and tried to explain it. Jesus speaks and God's revelation pours out of his mouth. But of course, he's not only uh, preaching new things, he is also completely affirming and restating, pointing back to the Old Testament. So he's, uh, secondly there, he's the definitive restatement of what God has said. Uh, we see that in Matthew 7 also. It says uh, Jesus uh, came, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I'm not getting rid of those things. I'm not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Sorry, not Matthew 7, Matthew 5. Or 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus affirms, restates, puts his stamp of approval on the entire Old Testament and says, yes, that's what God has said. And he often will just say it. Like when they come to him, they're like, hey, we, the Pharisees or Sadducees are like, we have this question. Uh, and Jesus is like, well, here's what the Bible says. Did you read it? Did you, check, did you think, think to check there? Uh, third, as a preacher... In continuity with the Old Testament, Jesus is, uh, first and foremost, a messenger to the people of God. He had a preaching ministry that, as we've seen, as we've walked through Matthew here on Sunday mornings, is a preaching ministry focused, first, during his ministry, on the lost sheep of Israel, the historic people of God. He's aiming his message at them. Of course, uh, that's not the end of it. We'll get to Matthew 28, where he opens it up and says he expands membership of the people of God for all peoples. But even there, he says, teach them, now that they've become my people, teach them to obey all that I've commanded. So preaching will continue, continue to focus on the people of God, helping them know, helping them uh, understand how to live in light of God's salvation. Uh, fourth, again, in continuity with the Old Testament, Jesus is the, the preacher or the prophet who God raised up. God said he would raise up a prophet like Moses, and here he is. Uh, he, he did that. Uh, so you know, I, I just have, I think, one or two references. Yeah, just one there uh, where he's called the prophet. The people look at him and they're like, this is the prophet. Uh, the people often are not quite right because they think he's only a prophet, uh, he's more than that, but it is, he's not less than a prophet. He is, he is truly the prophet who God has promised from Deuteronomy 18 that is coming into the world. Uh, fifth and finally, Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of God's word. This kind of uh, fills, out, uh, with, fill, fills in with a number of the things we've already said, but uh, it, it's worth stating on his own because we see really clearly in the Sermon on the Mount again and again Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And I don't think what he's doing there is saying the Old Testament was wrong. Well, I definitely don't think that he's saying that. Um, but because, you know, here was the issue. He never says, it is written, but I say to you. He says, you've heard it said. In other words, the, your teachers have been, have been opening the Bible for you and explaining that this is what it means, and they've come up with, I think it's like 639 rules that the Old Testament has or whatever. They're completely missing the point. You've heard it said, you've heard this taught, I'm saying to you, I am the authoritative interpreter of God's word. They have twisted it, they've distorted it. Here's what the Bible really means. That's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout his ministry. So, he comes as both the authoritative messenger and the definitive message. Again, he's a sermon in the flesh. So the rest of the church age arises from him. It, it looks back to his ministry uh, and his affirmation of the entire Old Testament uh, in order to, for us to know where we stand today. So uh, we'll work through those same five elements again. Yeah, we're okay on time here. Uh, I don't want to shortchange our Q&A. Um, Oh, yeah, we'll see how much time we have. Uh, yeah, so again, those same five things in the church age. First, it is very clear in the New Testament that when God's word is preached, when his message, his character, the truths about him is preached, he is the primary actor in the preaching. It is not the mouthpiece that he has put up in front of the people. It is God himself who is the primary actor. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. 
Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. He's using us. We're part of the process, but God's making his appeal through us. God's doing the appealing. Or 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. He says, when you received the word of God, which you, you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really, what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you, believers. So God is the primary actor behind preaching. Uh, and the reason that's true is because true preachers re-say what God has said. A true preacher of God's word is just saying what God has already said. They're not coming up with their own ideas. They're heralding a message that has been given to them. So Paul tells Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, no one in the church you're pastoring, I think he was in Ephesus, yeah. No one in Ephesus cares what you think about first century politics, Timothy. Guard the good deposit. God has given you his word. You're supposed to preach that. Don't preach what you think. Preach what God has said. Notice there, though, I say true preachers, right? Because to, to fail to preach the word of God is to be a false preacher. To speak when God has not spoken is to be a false preacher, just like it was with the prophets. To be a false prophet is to speak when God has not spoken. Uh, next, preaching in the New Testament and in the church age that we stand in today is primarily oriented toward the people of God. I, I don't want to belabor this too much. I think I've, I've made this point, but uh, just notice every epistle in the New Testament, every epistle in the New Testament is written to Christians. Uh, and these epistles were meant to be read aloud in churches. You see that in Colossians 4. Paul's writing this letter, and he, he says to them, uh, when this has been read, read among you, have it also read in the church in Laodicea. These epistles were functionally, originally, sermons. They were to be read to the church. Here is God's word speaking to you, church in uh, Colossae or Laodicea. This is God's word. Uh, the second way in which we see that in the New Testament is uh, the book of Hebrews, which is a sermon. Uh, this, is, this is, I think, really interesting when you, when you look at it. Uh, the book of Hebrews is itself basically a transcribed sermon. The book alternates between exposition, taking an Old Testament passage, and explanation, uh, you know, so, so saying, Here, here's what God has said, here's what it means for you, audience. We're not quite sure who the, the audience of the Hebrews was. We're not quite sure who the author is either. Um, but the, the book itself tells us this. So Jonathan Griffiths, who wrote a really good book on New Testament preaching, I think I have it in your notes, um, it's called Preaching in the New Testament, creative name, uh, talks about how uh, Hebrews calls itself a word of exhortation. That's, towards the end of the book, that's kind of its self-identification. This is a word of exhortation. And he says that's a, a technical term that was used in contemporary Judaism and early Christianity to refer to the sermon in a synagogue or church gathering. So it's saying this is a sermon. Uh, and it is primarily, very clearly, for the people of God. That's who he's speaking to. He's warning them in light of God's salvation not to, not to wander away. He's telling them how to live in righteousness. Uh, and the New Testament also shows us that God is the one who raises up the preachers of his word. Uh, and, yeah, I don't mean to make it sound like preaching is some super special office that's above everything else. Obviously, that would be extremely self-serving as someone who preaches here. Uh, it's not something that's, you know, for the few, the proud, and, you know, the extroverted or whatever. Uh, but the point that is here, clearly throughout the New Testament, is that God is the one who gives preachers and teachers to his church. Uh, I have uh, Acts 13 there for you. It says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on him, they sent them off. So God is raising up these, their missionaries at this point, um, to go and preach his word. Or Ephesians chapter 4, says, God gave, it's an important verb, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, which I understand to mean pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Uh, it does not mean that there's some like explicit, you know, some, some, you know, again, mystical call to preaching. I heard a voice from heaven or whatever. We don't know how Acts 13 worked. It says the Holy, Holy Spirit said that could have just been the people were like, seems like Paul and Barnabas are 
godly and uh, uh, gifted to do this work. And that's the way the Holy Spirit used to uh, communicate this to his people. Who knows? Um, but yeah, it's very clear in Ephesians uh, 4.11, God gives uh, teachers, he raises them up to preach his word. Uh, and then finally, preaching explains old truths in ever-changing context. The word never changes. Uh, the world does, but the word uh, never changes. We always preach the same old truths. I won't read uh, 2 Timothy 4 for you, but it's just saying that there are uh, people who are going to twist it. People are going to turn away, but hold fast, keep preaching the word. Uh, for the remainder of our time, and again, I, I don't want to shortchange Q&A, so I'll try to do it briefly. Uh, I think the main application, as we've seen this theme of preaching unfold from the very character of God in the third verse of the Bible to where we stand today, the main application should be very clear. Preach the word. We must preach the word. Look at 2 Timothy 4. It says, I charge you. This is Paul talking to Timothy, who's a pastor. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Stop. If you start a sentence like that, whatever you say next is a big deal, right? I charge you in the presence of God, all these things. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We must preach the word. And there's two things I want to say about that. First, to preach the word, the word must be the content of our preaching. It must be the content of our preaching. Here at Parkway, we are committed to expositional preaching, expositional preaching or expository preaching. I don't know why we have different adjectives that mean the exact same thing, um, but anyway, it's the same thing. Uh, what is that? Well, I have two definitions for you there. They, uh, again, are redundant because they're basically saying the same thing. I'll just read Mark Devers. Uh, expositional preaching is when the main point of the sermon is the main point of the text. This is what we try to do on Sunday mornings. God has said this. God has said this. Right? Here's what the Bible says. Therefore, this is what I'm going to say to you. I'm not going to come up with my own ideas or whatever. I, my job is to open the word, study the word, and communicate the word to God's people. Now, often expositional preaching is contrasted with uh, topical preaching, uh, where a preacher uh, decides what to preach and then opens the Bible. Uh, there are, I want to be careful, there are ways in which topical preaching can preach the word, but... It seems to be the case that if, if we're, it's backwards, if we're starting with, here's what I want to say, how can I use the Bible to say that? Like, like it's, something's backwards, right? We're not letting the word drive the ministry of preaching. We're not letting the word drive the content. We're driving the content. Uh, so this is why we work sequentially through books of the Bible. The word sets the agenda. It sets the content every Sunday. We just trust that God knows what his people need. Uh, because nothing is more applicable to our lives than what God has said. I have all kinds of opinions, church. I have opinions about a million things. I have opinions about politics, about education. I have opinions about uh, medicine. I have opinions about people who root for the Dallas Cowboys. Negative opinions, I'll tell you those. Um, you should not come on Sunday mornings to hear about my opinions. That is, not, that is not worth your time. It's not worth my time. The Word of God is worth our time. The Word of God is worth absolutely everything. So sometimes the Word of God will inter intersect with uh, a political issue or with something to do with education or medicine or tell you Dallas Cowboys are horrible. I'm pretty sure it's in there. Um, my job is to, to teach and preach at the point of that intersection and not ramble on about my opinions. The Word is worth our time. Uh, not what I happen to think. So the most important question about a sermon is not, did the preacher make me laugh? Was he compelling? Or even, did I agree with him? The most important question is, did he give me the word? Did he give me the word? Uh, I, uh, my favorite pastor in the world, that's a big statement, other than the guys I work with here, close one. My favorite pastor in the world is out in Lubbock, Texas. He is someone you have never heard of. And you probably, unless I tell you about him, you will never hear about him again. He is not the most charismatic speaker. 
He will never be asked to speak at some big conference in front of thousands. He will never have a, a viral YouTube clip of some glorious segment of his preaching. He's a, don't hear me wrong, he's a, he's a competent preacher. He's not a bad preacher. But he's not going to, you know, blow your socks off. But I sat under his preaching for four years, and he always gave his people the word. And that was one of the times of the most significant spiritual growth in my entire life. Not because I had a preacher who made me laugh or who was incredibly intelligent and, or so charismatic or whatever. I had a preacher who gave me the word. And that paid dividends in massive ways in my life. And I am so, so grateful for it. The word must be the content of our preaching. And it must also be the power behind preaching. When the word is spoken, God speaks, and that is the power that changes hearts. I remember at my old church, not the one in Lubbock, one, one of my churches in Chicago, we had a, a visitor. Uh, we had a re- I mean, he was, my, I'll say this, my pastor at our church in Chicago was one of the best preachers I've heard. Just like, just again, extremely gifted communicator, very good preacher. And, uh, but, but his interest was not in blowing his people's minds with how great he was. It was in giving his people the word. Uh, but I remember we had a visitor one time who uh, I was talking to. He's like, man, that guy was so good. He should be an influencer. And I was like, please don't tell him that. <laughs> like, There's nothing I can think of that will discourage him more. Because what you are saying is you think he is so great at communicating. There's some power in him to influence and change people like through an Instagram account or whatever, which is so lame. Um, but he knows, my, my pastor knew, that it is not his own unction, his own abilities that changes hearts. It is the word of God that he is preaching. It is the word that is the power behind preaching. The Bible says, Romans chapter 10, faith comes from uh, lasers and smoke machines. Oh no, that's not what it says, is it? Faith comes from charismatic personalities and hilarious jokes. Is that what it, no, no, no. Oh, here, okay. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. That's where the power is, so that's what we're going to keep preaching. I'll finish with this quote from Jared Wilson. We'll have a couple minutes. Look at me go. We'll have a couple minutes for Q&A. Jared Wilson, from a great book I just finished called Gospel Deeps, talking about the New Testament, book of Acts, says, uneducated men with stuttering tongues an unclever speech set the world on fire because they were content to simply arrange the wood and trust the torch of the gospel to do its thing. That's the power behind preaching. It's not in the preacher. It's not in anything else. It is in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. We are so thankful as we look at your word Uh, to know that you are a God who speaks. You are a God who reveals yourself to your people. You are a God who faithfully, steadfastly, throughout the generations has continued to speak just through an open Bible. And we thank you, Father, as we get to gather in just a few minutes and hear from your word. And we pray that you would bless that time. And always, Father, we pray that the ministry of the word of God at the Parkway Church would hold fast, keeping the word as the content of our preaching and as the power behind it. In Jesus' name, amen.